To understand the relationship between Gilbert and Kay Hine, I'd like to go back to when they met, and I would like Kay herself to tell you about that. After her death, among her personal papers and old letters, her daughter, Cheryl, discovered the following biographical story, typewritten by Kay, in a storage room on the same property from which she disappeared. The water splashed high, fast and loud, over the dam. I watched it hit the rocks below with terrific force. Between the dam and the smaller overflow, waves were high and white from the swiftness of the current. Day was breaking as I leaned against the car, feeling very tired and lifeless from the long, weary night. He stood on the opposite shore. His degrading swear words and hate pierced through with the early dawn between the roar of the angry water. Could God have created two things so different, yet so alike as my husband and this dam? The top of the dam was flat and rather wide. The tourist sightseeing road ended at the dam's edge. The wind carried his angry feelings and words through to me. Drive on across the top. Don't be such a coward. The current where he stood and pointed to was very strong. The waves were high from the terrific force of the water coming through. It frightens me just to look at it. I knew that no person, no car could make a successful trip across the ledge. I knew I would never live to see the other side if I listened to him and tried to cross. So I ignored him and walked below to the overflow. It wasn't so deep. I could see it was wide enough for a car to cross over it. A washout was between the bank's edge and the ledge on both sides. I searched the bank's edge for planks, or something to use as such. I found some wood planks long enough and wide enough. The planks were now in place and were very strong to hold the weight of the car. I thought, did it really matter if I made it across safely? The night had been so long and nerve-wracking. We'd started home from somewhere. It seemed so long ago, I couldn't remember from where. We'd gotten lost when the heavy rain and gusty winds of the storm grew worse with the length of the night. As dawn was making her way through the darkness, we'd come to this dam. Now he was safe on the other side, but I couldn't remember how he got there. Beyond him in the roaring water, I could just see the road leading home. Home to rest, to peace, or would I just hear more clearly his curses, his degradation, his hate for me with the roar of the dam? I started pulling and tugging on the wooden plank. Yes, I would try to take the car across the overflow. The drop-off on each side was deep, but I had to go on. There, there was no turning back. I knew if the car slipped or the water was faster and deeper than I judged that it would be death for me. But did it really matter? Did anyone really care? Would the peace and rest of death be a wonderful relief to the life I'd been existing with? When the planks were set, I got in the car and started the motor. The front wheels slid easily onto the plank. Then I could feel the car slide. The planks made a cry of distress into the early morning. They were too old to hold that much weight. I heard the loud crack as they let go. I felt the car turning in the water. As the full force of the water hit the sides of the car, I screamed. I let go of the wheel and grabbed the seat as though it would protect me. 
My fingers ached under the pressure of the tight grip I held on with. Then I realized it was a blanket I was gripping. I lay in bed, perspiration covered my forehead and face. I was trembling and weak. It was all so real. How could I have dreamed it? The more awake I got, the more meaning the dream held. I never believed in dreams, but this one was so real. My husband's degrading and insulting behavior was just as real in the dream. The home in the dream I was searching for was so much like the home I wanted in real life. The wind, the angry water, and the obstacle at the dam now stood out in my mind like the people in my life. Like a dream when the terrible ordeal and parts are over. It can all be so wonderful to again see the beautiful morning, the new day that brings on new life, when we think life is unbearable, that God has forsaken us. Then, like the water in the dream, a new day comes and sweeps it all away. I was lonely and very hurt when I first met my now husband. Even though months had passed since my divorce, I still had difficulty in accepting it. After years of counseling, only to be told each time there was no hope for our marriage, I'd finally agreed to the divorce, which soon after, he married the other woman. The day of our first meeting, he didn't impress me. He was so different than my usual idea, my choice of man. In fact, some of the things he said and did infuriated me. Time passed. One day while fishing, he seemed to appear from out of nowhere. At this meeting, I could see another person as myself, lonely, past their middle 30s. As we talked, we found we had something in common. We both had past experiences of someone else taking our place. We went on fishing trips, picnics, we talked a lot, then we planned. He was on a long leave from the service. In the end of it, and upon his return, we planned to be married. I met his family. Part of them greeted me warmly. One sister-in-law I noticed from the start was polite, but aloof, especially in the presence of my husband. I noticed when we were alone, she was very inquisitive and had remarks to make of. Once she even said that he had asked her advice if she should marry me or not. I felt uneasy around her and was always glad when any visits where she was included were ended. It bothered me, but I felt that in time we would be friends. She would see how much I really did love him, how hard I would work to have a good marriage and a happy home. Once I even mentioned it to Charlie, that I didn't see why she acted as though she didn't like me. He only laughed about it. He told me that I was imagining things, that she only showed concern for him, and he had confided in her and her husband, his brother. Since being alone for eight years, he had to have someone to confide in. I let the subject drop, although it did leave me with some feeling of uneasiness. We had a quiet, simple little marriage, although I don't think any bride was more in love or more happy than I. We returned to the Navy. He was stationed in a beautiful city that I'd never been before. I met his friends. All his Navy friends and their wives welcomed us into their circle. 
The wives invited me to their coffee club, and I was soon a part of them. I was very busy in the Red Cross work at the hospital, attending meetings and things that were expected of an officer's wife. I loved it all, but most of all, I loved the time we were together. I felt young again. I felt like I was bursting with happiness and love for Charlie. Many times just hanging his shirts on the line, I would hold them close, feeling a wonderful feeling of God's love. One night he came from work and told me to hurry and dress up pretty because we were going to visit some of his old friends and he wanted to show me off. I teased him. He acted like a teenager and we both laughed a lot while dressing and making the trip out there. When we arrived, a small girl came to the door and greeted us and invited us in. The man sitting at the table with a small glass in his hand and a jar in front of him showed signs of having had quite a lot of contents of the jar. Later, I found it was moonshine he was drinking. He got up from the table and came surprisingly steady and greeted us. He said he'd heard about me, that I couldn't get a better guy, also that I looked to be a lovely person. He started back to the table, then turned and made a remark that not until later did it make any sense to me. He said, I can tell you, don't let them break you up. He sat down on the chair and started telling Charlie of how she rode him, never satisfied with the money he brought home. He went on and on. I finally pieced together that he meant his wife. Later, a car drove in. A large framed woman in her late 50s, heavily painted with makeup, came bursting in the door. She sat on my husband's lap and started kissing and hugging him. She ignored me completely. My husband pointed to me and said he would like her to meet his wife. She flipped her hair and said, Yes, I've already heard about her. She still sat on his lap, asking all about his folks, especially his one sister-in-law. Then I could begin to see what was happening. The one sister-in-law I had met and her were good friends, and they both made up their minds that they were not going to like me. The man then got up and told Charlie he wanted to show him something outside. As soon as the door closed, his wife started asking me questions. She said she couldn't figure why he married me. He was engaged to a lovely girl from up there, etc. I was glad when the visit came to an end. The next day after Charlie left for work, I sat over a cup of coffee thinking about the night before when a rap came on the door. I opened the door to find this character of a woman we had visited the night before outside. She didn't ask to come in or wait for me to invite her. She just barged in. I went to the cupboard and got her a cup and poured her a cup of coffee and she sat down at the table. She said, now let's you and I talk. She went on that the sister-in-law had written her and how they had decided I had married my husband for his money and that they intended to separate us. She insinuated that she had had an affair with my husband while she and her husband were separated. They went back together, then a romance was supposed to be blooming between her 15-year-old daughter and my husband. I listened till I was feeling sick at her crazy mixed-up chatter. I handed her her purse from the studio couch and I opened the door and told her to go out the same way she came in. 
She left yelling curse words and foul names at me as she drove off. I sat down, shaking, trying to figure it all out. A voice came from the door. Can I come in? I couldn't help but hear. I thought you might like someone to talk to. It was the girl who lived in the next trailer. Anne and I became good friends. Her folks owned the trailer park we lived in. She went to them and they moved our trailer, for we figured out the old gal would be back, which she was. A few weeks later, Anne came over and said, She'd come to her trailer inquiring where we'd gone. She laughed and said she had told her we'd moved out of town. The rest of the 13 months there were wonderful. We were so in love and happy, Charlie and I. We attended military functions together. We fished. We hunted deer and squirrels. Some mornings when he didn't have to work, we would get up early and go out and catch crabs and spend the day cleaning and eating them watching TV or just talking. We planned for the day of his retirement, of how we would buy his brother's interest out on a rental a few miles from the home place. We would be close enough so he could help some there, yet would be far enough away for privacy. We planned how we would fix up the big old house, have a garden, how we would fish and hunt when we wanted. Those were wonderful days. We had a calendar each morning where we would laugh like children and mark off the day before. The day finally came and we packed up and started our new life with all the goodbyes and good lucks of our military friends. It was a long ride. The car was full, although we had shipped a lot of our things. We arrived into his father's house in the night. His father greeted us with open arms and tears in his eyes. The next day would get into the plans we had of getting our home ready to move into. Then one day I came to the bitter awakening that he had changed his mind, that his father was old and his mother's mind had been gone for years so she was like a child, that he had talked it over with his people and decided we would make our home there as long as his parents lived. He had made all these plans without consulting me or asking how I felt about it. Nothing I could say could ever get him to discuss it with me or change his mind. I was very hurt and bewildered. I knew the one sister-in-law was pressuring him, but I thought his love for me was stronger. I didn't think he would completely change. I went along for a while, trying to make the best of it, thinking each day he would see his mistake. But time only brought on the fact of how permanent his decision had been. His mother was an awful chore to be cared for. She had to be tied in her bed or the chair to keep her there. She had to be fed. She made awful messes. She got so she couldn't be left with my father-in-law alone, for he was quite feeble. So I got so I went nowhere. I sent for my groceries. I ordered clothing and what house items I needed from a catalog. The two brothers and their wives lived on each side of us. They were all in and out of our house as they had been, used to doing, before we moved in, although none ever offered to help me out. The one sister-in-law was very antagonistic towards me. The whole mess was getting on my nerves and I thought that was what was causing me to feel so badly when I discovered I was going to have a baby. It was an awful shock when I told my husband, 
expecting him to be gentle and happy over it all. I thought now he would see how important it was that we get a place of our own. But instead, he flew into a rage and said I did it on purpose just to get my own way, that my sister-in-law was right. I was only a conniving woman and went on to say it would get me nowhere. They were not leaving, and if I was to have his kid, as he put it, it was up to me. He slammed out the door. Later I saw him leaning against the tree talking to the sister-in-law, and she came laughing into the house. She said she'd heard the news, that I must feel great about cooking up this scheme, as she put it, to hold on to a man that didn't want me. Days went on like this. One day, I had gone into the barn for some old papers. As I came back down the steps, my foot hit a small piece of pipe and it threw me off balance. I fell the full length of the stairs. The twist of my body was worse than the fall. I got up feeling a terrible, sharp pain. I leaned against the wall and eventually got the strength to get to the house and lay down a while. For several days, I wondered if I could go on. I still did all my own work, cared for his mother, prepared the meals. I laid down a lot. One night, while all the rest were asleep, it had all ended. I thought I'd die. The pain was so severe. I lay a while on the bathroom floor and then pulled myself up and slowly cleaned up the mess I'd made. I crawled around until dawn. My lips were swollen and sore from me biting them to help me hold back the soreness from the tearing, painful night that I'd gone through. My body hurt and my heart was heavy. I went into exhausted sleep. Later I awoke and found Charlie had already gotten up. Every morning the sister-in-law had been coming in, very early. She kept her milk things in what was supposed to be my kitchen. She kept her milk in what was supposed to be my refrigerator. At least while I was the woman of the house, I'd even put up a dish towel rack and she had thrown my dish towels off and hung her strainer cloth she used to strain the milk with in their place. Each thing she would do, deliberately trying to start a fight, I'd make no answer, although many times I'd ask my husband to please talk to her and ask her to keep her milk stuff in her own house and the things she needed to care for it. We didn't even use her milk, and I knew she only kept it in there for an excuse of running in and out twice a day. His answer was always the same. If I would try to get along, things would be better, and that I imagined things. One morning, I heard the sound of paper crinkling, so I knew he was reading the morning paper. I heard the front screen door open and her hateful, familiar steps on the porch. She let the door slam as usual and went stomping into the living room. As she passed the bedroom door, I heard her say, What's it? A wife thinks that her sleep is more important than her husband's breakfast? She laughed, her coarse, ugly cackle. She stomped on into the kitchen and I could hear water running and her splashing and slamming things about as she did each morning, many times while I would be trying to prepare breakfast. My nerves were edgy. I was weary. I went to the bedroom door. I begged Charlie in a low tone again, as I had many times, 
please ask her to take her things to her own home so at least we could have this much privacy. He completely ignored me. I closed the door and sat back, weary on the bed, waiting for the dizziness and weakness to pass from which I was suffering from the night's ordeal. She came back through the living room, this time with a big laugh, followed with, Boy, some people sure have a marriage. What are you going to do? Cook her breakfast and serve it to her in bed? Finally, I'd taken all I could. I opened the door as she went off the porch and told my husband I couldn't take it anymore. The answer I got was, he told me to shut up and that he wished I was half the woman she was. As he finished, I looked down to see a path of mud and cow manure she had tracked clear through the house. That, on top of all else, was more than I could take. I went into the kitchen, and I grabbed up all her beloved milk things. The milk in the jars in the refrigerator I poured down the sink drain. All jars, rags, strainers, everything she drug in. I carried all of them out the front door and threw them into the yard. She was still standing nearby to hear what he had to say. I yelled at her to take her junk and stay out of this house as long as I was in it. My husband got up and went out the door to help her gather up her jars and her strainers and her rags. As he passed by me, I heard the word, bitch. But it didn't matter anymore. I hurt both mentally and physically. I felt about as much as I could. When she saw him going out the door, she ran to him, red in the face, jumping up and down, screaming and cursing. He put his arm around her fat, dumpy shoulders, and they walked off together, her cuddling up to him. I ran into the bedroom and sat down on the bed. As they passed the bedroom window, I heard him say, Pay no attention to her. She's crazy. I jumped up and yelled, Yes, I'd have to be crazy to put up with all this while I've been here. Then I told her to watch when walking fast, to not stop too fast or it would be fatal for him, for he always followed her around so close. That did it. She let out a scream, jumped up in the air, and ran for the other brother's house. I sat back in the bed and laughed. I actually felt better since I had, at last, after all this time, struck back and had the last words. I watched her run into the brother's house, She'd hardly closed the door when she ran back out and headed for her own house. She ran up the path screaming like a crazy woman. My husband came in and took his gun and headed for the woods like he did sometimes. I sat on the studio couch. His mother hadn't woken up despite all of the morning's happenings. His father had gone on his before breakfast walk. I saw him come down the path leaning heavily on his cane, peering into the bushes for a bird out for their morning feast or anything he could spot. The sister-in-law seemed to appear from out of nowhere. She ran to him. I couldn't hear what she said, but I could tell that she was telling him everything that had happened this morning. He stroked his cane in front of him, with his head bowed while she talked. After a time, she would lean down as though she needed to look up into his face, and she would point to the house and shake her arms in anger. He still never did look up, 
and I could never tell if he ever answered her or not. After she finished, she ran up the path again and headed home. He came in the house, hobbling and jumping on his cane. I still sat in the studio couch, and he came over and sat beside me. I was all prepared for the worst, him ordering me out, and then I would tell him I intended to go as soon as I could. But instead, he sat back on the couch. Anger showed in his eyes. Finally, he spoke and nodded his head up and down, as though the words couldn't express his feelings enough. He reached for my hand as he said, Well, my dear, it's about time. I wondered how long that thing called a woman would run onto you, give you a hard time before you would fight back. I am old and hard of hearing, but I have known and suffered with you on what she's been putting you through. My dear, I, I couldn't do it for you. You had to get a backbone, and you had to fight back for yourself. Now, maybe she'll leave you be. After my son brought her here, she caused us all a lot of hell, one by one. As we'd cuss her back or put her in her place, she would leave us alone. You are my son's wife. I know you love my son. I can tell. He needs you. I'm old, but I'm not dumb. Don't let her run you off. That is what she's trying to do. As long as I have a home, you have a home. Now, how about some breakfast and start a new, more bearable life here for yourself? He reached up and patted my arm and went to fill his pipe while I got breakfast ready. Later, my niece came in from the other house on the other side. She was laughing at how her sister-in-law had run into the house, cussing at how I'd put her out. She said her dad had just laughed. Well, at least one hump was over, although my husband was very angry at me. He'd call me crazy and acted like he couldn't stand to touch me. I'd see the two of them out there talking and he'd pat her and walk off. Others would tell me of things they would hear them say. This couldn't go on to save our marriage. We would have to leave here. But how? It was impossible to talk to him about moving. If I would say I would leave, he'd start up with what he'd told me originally that I wouldn't stick it out. And I think that's what made me so mad and fight harder than anything. In spite of it all, I still loved him. One day, while reading the paper, I read about shell houses. We had that amount of money. I sent for floor plans. I'd put his mother in the car and ride around checking for lots for sale. After a while, he finally agreed to build someday, as he put it, down the road on a piece of land that he had. After lots of thought and trying to talk to him about this, and after he had put my name on the deed with his, to my surprise, he agreed to talk to a salesman, and we ended up meeting the manager at his office. The fellow sensed my urgency. My husband ended by signing the contract. Our home was to start to be built on Monday. I still couldn't believe it. I felt now that our marriage could have a chance and that we could now live and love as God had planned a husband and wife to do. I was excitedly telling my father-in-law about it when I heard a rustle outside the window. I looked up and saw my sister-in-law walking quickly away. My husband was sitting in the yard and she rushed to him. She raised her voice till she was shouting. 
What did he mean by letting me pull the wool over his eyes? That it was his and my job to see after the old folks for the rest of their lives. Wasn't the old folks' house good enough for me, etc.? After all, the Bible said, Honor thy mother and father. She ranted on some more, and he reached up and patted her and laughed, and said, It was worth the price of the shell to shut me up, that he had no intention of finishing the house so we could live in it as long as the old folks lived. I felt sick. She went off laughing down the path. I counted time till Monday. Still in fear, he had canceled the plans. Monday morning finally came, and by then little hope was left. When I saw a cloud of dust as the trucks went down the road, loaded with timber, with the name of our construction company on the side, God had not forsaken me. I was so happy. I put my mother-in-law in the car and followed them down to where the house was to be built. I watched the house go up board by board. It was like awakening from a bad dream. I tried to get all the knowledge I could from the foreman on the finishing of the house. My father had been a construction man, and I had helped him some, so I knew some. I wrote my daddy at last of my plans and my plight. He wrote back and asked when the shell would be done. The day for the finish had come. The trucks pulled out, and they left behind scrap I could make good use of. I had built some ready-made cabinets to use in my father-in-law's house. One day, he came over, took my hand, and said, My dear, after you and Charlie are living in your new house where you belong, I won't need these fancy cupboards. Why don't you just take them on over there to your new house and put back my old faithful shelves? In fact, I sort of miss them. I guess it's hard to get used to this new stuff. He laughed and went out for a walk to find his birds. I tugged and pulled and finally got the cupboards in the back of the car and then into my dream home. I went to bed not knowing how I would do it, but sure it would all work out. The next morning, very early, the dogs awoke me. I heard a car come in the drive. I went to the door. It was my father. He had his tools all in the car, and he had driven 1,200 miles to help me make my dream come true. So next, we went into town and ordered the material that he'd listed, and in two weeks, the house was wired, the plumbing was in, and it was ready for us to move into. I overheard another conversation between my sister-in-law and my husband. He was telling her to be quiet in front of my father, that he would soon be gone and he wouldn't just let me move in as long as the old folks lived. I told Daddy what I overheard. We had almost enough furniture to furnish the house we'd bought, and we'd gotten a lot of it to finish the house of his father. When I talked to my father-in-law in private, I told him how my husband had no plans for us to move into the new house and that he was going to tell me we couldn't move in till we had enough money to buy everything all new again. My father-in-law's eyes popped. He said, this is your stuff. You put it in your home. So again, I told my father what he'd said. We backed the two cars up to the door and hauled everything out that we could into the cars. Then I went to the man that we had bought the washer, freezer, 
and other appliances from and told him of my plight. He asked what I was lacking and I told him we needed a refrigerator. He showed me some and asked which one I liked and that it would be delivered that very same day and that the men were to move it all the way into the house for me, free of charge. I would pay for the refrigerator as soon as I could. I went home with my head in the clouds. I was so happy. My husband and the rest of his family were working in the pasture. I moved the furniture and had our own home ready to go so that we ate supper that night in our house. My daddy, my father-in-law, and my mother-in-law were our guests. It was a beautiful supper setting, eating at our table on an orange crate for we only had three chairs. I felt I had awoken from a bad dream, a dream like another dream, that I'd had to take a chance and use my own judgment or all would have been lost. As I write this, four years have gone by our two-and-a-half and one-and-a-half-year-old boys are taking their naps right now. My husband will soon be home from his job in town. My mother-in-law recently passed away, and my father-in-law now has a housekeeper. When I go to visit him, he'll hold my hand as he's laying in bed. He is no longer able to get out and see the birds and nature that he loves so much. As he holds my hand, his eyes will fill with tears. We seem to know what each other are thinking, and we seem to both be thinking of a bad dream and glad it is over, and another bright, beautiful day is here. So there's a couple things that help us understand when this story was written. Near the end when Kay wrote, as I write this, four years have gone by, and her children were two and a half and one and a half. That oldest boy was born in 1960. Also, Gilbert's mother died in 1962, and Kay says in her story that she had recently died. And what this story tells us is that her marriage to Gilbert Hine had been tumultuous since at least 1958. It was essentially a marriage fraught with emotional abuse almost from the start. Verbal abuse is outlined in her story from Gilbert and certainly the sister-in-law depicted in the story, who was Eileen Hine, his brother Clyde's wife. Kay married Gilbert Hine in 1958, and about eight months later he retired from the Navy and they moved back to his hometown of Parrish, Florida. About a year and a half later, they would adopt the child that would be named after Gilbert, but called Charlie. Charles was Gilbert's middle name, and it's probably why Kay used it in the story for her husband instead of calling him Gilbert. The only record of the adoption I was able to find, which occurred in 1960, was a note in the Bradenton Herald under News of Record for the courts. There was a listing with Kathleen's name spelled wrong and Gilbert G. Hine, not C, meaning both of their names were technically not spelled correctly, but it simply listed their business in the courthouse that day as adoption. So there is record of Charlie's adoption. There was never any record of John David being adopted, and that's because he wasn't. It's unclear whether Gilbert was employed at the time because he had not yet been hired by the juvenile court system. I did find the following opinion piece that Gilbert had penned for the Bradenton Herald about the county engineer 
related to road projects in 1960. The piece is titled Questions, Statements by County Engineer, and it is addressed to the editor. I have been following your editorials with the greatest of interest, and it appears to me that you and you alone, with the exception of those few who recently expressed their views as guest editorials, are fighting a one-man battle toward the improvement of Manatee County. No greater words of praise could be expressed for your devotion and dedicated efforts than to awaken the citizens of Manatee County to its great potential by demanding the wheels of progress, get out of low gear, and start turning at high speed for the inevitable growth of tomorrow. Congratulations from me to you for your untiring efforts, and let no one underestimate the power of the press, for I am certain your cause will not have been in vain. I have just been sickened to the bottom of my stomach from reading an article in a St. Petersburg newspaper, 55 Road Projects in Manatee Budget. Therein, County Engineer John Benson is alleged to have expressed his views on roads in Manatee County. If it is true that the referenced newspaper article correctly reflects the views of our County Engineer, then his resignation should be demanded. Mr. Benson states, according to the newspaper article, that the county tries to improve roads which are traveled most and those in the areas in which tax money is collected. I would challenge Mr. Benson's method in determining which roads are traveled most. Furthermore, I would charge Mr. Benson to disconcern himself with the collection of taxes, leaving this important civic function to the duly elected for and by the people, the able gentleman, Gibb Johnson. Mr. Benson further states, according to the article, shell roads are best in the East County because asphalt could deteriorate from age. Such a precarious statement coming from one who holds such high office as that of county engineer is, in my opinion, an insult as well as disgrace to the citizens of Manatee County. I insist those with intelligence and integrity join ranks and put Manatee County on the map for today and tomorrow. Gilbert C. Hine, Route 2, Palmetto. This was followed by the following editor's note. It's hard to disagree with a letter beginning in such a manner, but to give perspective, we should add that the professional reputation of county engineer John Benson is an unqualified tops in his field. Possibly what has happened here is a portion of a statement being taken from context, especially in regard to the superiority of shell to asphalt. There must be more to that statement than met the eye in the printed article. Benson is now out of town. On his return, we'll ask him for and print a full statement on the matter. Above all, we find it highly encouraging that citizens are taking greater interest in our community roads, one of our county's greater problems. Seems like that time period, men could pretty much freely do whatever they want to women, and there was very little repercussions. Yeah, it was 
it was pretty terrible. Yeah, it was. He'd come home, you know. He'd want his bike, and he'd want his paper, and he'd want his slippers, and she just had to be. She had to cook and take care of all the animals, and just whatever he wanted, when he wanted it, he wanted it now, you know. He didn't do any of the work on the ranch. No. No, that's what he had us for. <sighs> wow. Yeah, he'd just go to go to this job as a clerk and that, and come home and expect everything to be done and ready and the food ready. And Yeah, I think um, appearances were important to him. I read, he wrote an op-ed article about sort of ranting against um, this road commission or something. I don't know. And he seemed very articulate and he wrote well. It, it was your impression that he sounded educated and intelligent or how did he come off in person? Yeah, well, when he was in Navy, he was a chief warrant officer. What is that? What is a chief warrant officer? It's uh, it's, it's high in documents and such. Like he, he uh. said that uh, uh, whenever there were uh, letters that came and went to families and that during the war, you know, it went through him. You know, he, he would okay the sending of them. He had to read everything and make sure that things like that. So he had a pretty important job, and yeah, he's very intelligent. Mm. Obviously, if you you know if you look at this whole thing, I mean, it's very calculated person. He got away with anything and everything he ever wanted. You know, he always got away with everything. Yeah, and the backing of the court system is particularly relevant because he knew what he had to do. You know. Like with your birth certificate, he knew what he needed to do to, you know, he had to get that for you. How old were you when the birth certificate thing happened in 82? Oh, God, God. See, I'm uh, 61 now, so it's... So you were born at 61, 71, 81. Like 30 years or... Okay, so you were like 20, 20s. Whoops, 61, 71, 81. 21. Yeah. Huh. So he had a reason for doing that because he could have done that. Yeah, they had it done out of Texas because they were living in Texas. And he, yeah, just out of nowhere. And I didn't even know it was done. And I, let me see, what was I? Oh, that's right. We came out with a new license and they said that I had to have a birth certificate for the new license. Mm-hmm. So I went down, I filed for it, and I said, you know, I know I wasn't going to get one because I don't have one, but I was going to file for it. And I wanted them to say, well, you don't have one. We don't have you on file. And then I could have went forward from there with, you know, obviously there's something wrong here. But to my surprise, poof, there's a birth certificate with the, the new mother's name on it and his name. You know, saying that I was born in May 25th of 1961. So if you look at the birth certificate, you would think she was my mother. Oh, jeez. You know, she, so Kay Hine just, just, they just wiped her right off the, made her completely disappear. So, so now I do have a birth certificate with <laughs> this person that was party to the whole thing with him. Cause, you know, he knew her at the time. I mean, they were, you know, together before before my mom was supposedly disappeared. But she lived, I guess, not too far up the road. She lived fairly close. 
So she clearly knew she wasn't your mother. So, I mean, I don't know if she would have had to participate and put her name on there. He could have done it without her knowledge. I don't know um, how that. Yeah, me neither. I mean, I, I would have thought that I would have had to have some say in it. But it's strange. It's like, how did, you know, it's like, man, can you do it? Can you insult me anymore? It just keeps coming, you know. Now mm-hmm. I have a birth certificate with, you know, and she, and she's just as bad as he is, which I would wouldn't doubt that she was party to to the whole thing. When did he so, go? To, when did he move to Texas? What year do you remember? Uh, he moved to Texas while well, I was in the military, so maybe eighty two. I think he moved, he moved there because of the controversy here. So he pretty much just, he ran away from the whole thing here because it was all getting complicated. <laughs> People were asking questions. And... In February of 1962, Gilbert Hine was hired by Judge Robert Rickey to work in the Manatee County Juvenile Court Department. The newspaper reported that Hine was a Navy veteran with many years of clerical experience. Gilbert's mother, the one who had been ill for so long, died about six months after he took that court position, and it would have been around this time that the Hines began taking in foster children. According to family members, there was no fostering going on prior to their two boys, John David and Charlie, entering their lives, and that fact will be important, so I want you to remember it. It's still unclear to me why and how this idea developed in the first place. There is no documented account of why the Hines began fostering, but the county system in particular was directly under fire only months after they began. In October of 1962, Judge Rickey himself was being lambasted in the press. In the October 11, 1962 edition of the Bradenton Herald, a scathing piece was written titled, Judge Rickey Placing Children in Unlicensed Homes, Board Charges. This was a charge being leveled by the Manatee County Licensing Board for day nurseries and foster boarding homes. They said the judge was assigning children to unlicensed homes in violation of the law. Judge Rickey hit back. I am going to suggest to the licensing board that it take the responsibility for placing these children in licensed foster homes. I would like to commit every child to the board's care and they can place the children in licensed homes, which should be their duty to secure. However, since they are such sticklers for the homes being licensed, I shall insist upon this. The foster homes will also have to be approved by the court and be able to provide the type of care for these children which the court deems necessary for their rehabilitation. If the licensing board cannot handle all this, I'm going to see that it is done by direct action of my department. Now when he says the court, he means him. The judge said if he needed to place a child, he was going to find a suitable placement, whether the home was licensed or not. And I think it's important to understand that judges have a lot of discretion and power, and never is that more clear than in a small town. Just because a foster home is licensed by the licensing board does not automatically make it a fit place to assign children. In several cases, I have refused to assign them to licensed homes, which I did not approve as fit for occupancy by wards of the court. One home had worms and other types of illnesses had affected children being kept there. In another was a case of attempted rape of a child. In another, a girl became pregnant. In another, the foster children were kept in a home with senile parents 
who the children were forced to bathe and care for. And in another, a 13-year-old girl was forced into prostitution of the most perverted type. The journalist who wrote this story for the Herald accessed the minutes of the quarterly licensing board meeting and learned that the director of the Manatee County Health Department and chairman of the aforementioned board said this, We have found five homes keeping children without being licensed. They are operated by Mrs. Kathleen Hine, Mrs. Dawn Chambers, Mrs. Russell Kingsbury, Mrs. Ed Silver, and Mrs. Lottie Durrance. Five homes keeping children with no attempt made to license these homes. In one instance, the home had a license to keep one child and was keeping 19. In this case, we could not possibly issue a license for more than eight children. These children are being placed without supervision or licensing. One of these homes could not be licensed at all. Judge Ricky has not cooperated at all in this thing. That home that was allegedly keeping 19 children at one point was the Hine Ranch. The judge responded, saying that in every case but one of the foster parents mentioned, an application had been submitted for a foster home license. But he said in two cases, two licenses were, in his opinion, unnecessary. In the case of Chambers, they were contemplating adopting the one child they had. Thus, he did not feel that they were affected by provisions of the law. In the case of the Silvers, the judge found the home was an ideal place for difficult delinquent boys because delinquent boys fell under his jurisdiction, the juvenile court, and he felt they were outside the foster care regulation and squarely within his. Further, the Silvers had tried to obtain a license but could not without installing a $2,000 metal fire escape on the outside of their two-story home, so the boys were removed from the home. We moved the boys, although it was a disservice to the children. In the case specifically of the Hine foster home, it was originally licensed only by the county for one child, and one has to wonder if that one child was supposed to have been John David. But it was then approved by the county for eight children. Judge Rickey said that at no time were there 19 children ever kept in that home at one time. He said this despite Kay Hine herself saying otherwise when she was interviewed. So the judge then tried to clarify. He said once in an emergency situation, a family of four children and another family of six temporarily populated the home to 16. However, some were placed there upon the specific request of a school psychologist or physician, and every effort is made not to split families. And he said this as if the reasoning for the placement somehow canceled out the fact that they had way more children than they were allowed to have and still had not been licensed by the state. The judge insisted that these were good foster homes, loving and not in it for the money involved. Presumably the good judge had no way of knowing, as these children themselves would later tell law enforcement that Gilbert was abusing them. Multiple documents within the police report note that one former foster child said he ran away from that home twice. Gilbert followed him in the car once until he passed out from running. He said Gilbert fiercely beat him and other foster children with a belt. Another thing that was gleaned from those licensing board meeting minutes is that the state welfare department could not legally place any children in the home of someone who was employed in work with children. Gilbert Hine was an employee of the Manatee County Juvenile Department under Judge Rickey, as was another of the foster parents, Mr. Silver. They were both employees of the county judge's office, which, frankly, doesn't that have sort of a whiff of something that doesn't smell altogether 
okay to you guys, or is it just me? Nobody found it strange that multiple of the judge's employees were fostering children? No one saw it as a conflict of interest? And furthermore, no one in or around the judge was familiar enough with state law to know that it was against welfare department regulations for them to do so? The judge insisted that the Hine home was licensed, county licensed, before Gilbert was employed by the juvenile department, and he argued further that because it was operated by his wife and not Gilbert Hine, the state welfare regulation did not apply to him. And that seems like an interesting workaround, but they're called foster parents, not foster parent. And I was told by a family that the foster care money from the county came in Gilbert's name, not Kay's, which would essentially negate the argument being made by the judge that it was Kay running the operation so they weren't technically in violation of the law. If you're paying Gilbert Hine, you can't say that Kay's the one running the show. The licensing board put it on record that they were sincerely worried about these children and felt many of them were in the wrong place. Now, the big lie here for the purposes of our story is that Judge Rickey told the licensing board that Kay and Gilbert had been fostering before he hired Gilbert, which was patently false. They were only county licensed for a single foster child at that time that this all exploded in the press, yet Judge Rickey had placed children with them multiple times, including a family of four and a family of six children. I believe that the one child to which they were referring at the time was John David. At least that's what they wanted it to look like on paper, because they did not have a birth certificate or any documentation for that child. So I believe when they got John David, Kay had applied for a foster license for one child, and that was the previous license to which the judge referred, but she did not have at that time a license to foster any other children. Essentially, I think what happened is they applied for that county license for just one child, so they would have some documentation to explain where the child came from. By the end of 1964, two years after the public skirmish over the foster home licensing, the Manatee County Foster Home Program was transferred from the jurisdiction of the county's juvenile department to a new child welfare unit of the state welfare department. Judge Robert Rickey agreed to relinquish money in his budget for the foster home program to the state as of July 31st of 1964. Curiously, in April of 1965, both the Bradenton Herald and the Tampa Bay Times did stories on the Hine Ranch and foster home. Bradenton Couple Has 135 Foster Children Written by Pat Piper The first line reads, For a woman who always dreamed of having 13 children, Mrs. K. Hine has done pretty well for herself. The article is accompanied by an image of five children climbing on a wooden jungle gym, with K. close by. The 16-acre ranch east of Bradenton was described along with the claim that K. had been foster mother to more than 135 children in the past four years. So that alone supports the fact that they had only been fostering for four years, and in the timeline, that fell after the two boys entered the Hine home. In 1965, at the time of this article, Kay's son Roger, from a previous marriage, was a senior at Palmetto High. Charlie was five around this point, and the article said Davy was aged four. Davy was apparently John David. But at least two people I spoke with were curious as to why Kay would be calling John David Davy in the interview, because none of them had ever called him that. Kay told the reporter that fostering wasn't something that she had planned. She considered taking in another child for company 
for her first son a few years earlier. Kay told the reporter that she had seen an ad in the personal column in the Times where a woman wanted someone to take care of her child for free until she was able to care for him herself. She and Gilbert, she said, went to St. Petersburg and brought the five-year-old child home and kept him for some period of time until his mother was able to take over. In this article, Kay went on to describe their foster care history. He, Gilbert, called me one day and said that they had picked up a nine-year-old problem child who had a violent temper, and he asked if I would keep him overnight. He was no problem to me at all, and he stayed with us for several weeks. Kay said at this point she decided to apply for a foster boarding home license. So she herself is saying that she had taken in at least two children before she applied for a license. This article is also where she confirms once having six children all from one family, confirming with this quote that they had had multiple children in the same home before she was licensed. Kay told the reporter that it was her understanding that the county foster homes were under the jurisdiction of Judge Rickey. But then she did mention that when the state started issuing checks in September of 1964, quote, there seemed to be a misunderstanding. When they started telling me the rules and regulations they wanted me to abide by, I was ready to quit. But Judge Rickey explained there was a misunderstanding on the state's duties, and he asked me to continue on. So that's what they did. The Hines listened to the judge, and for two years after they had been told by the licensing board, that they needed to do otherwise, they were still not operating within the mandated state guidelines. When they contacted the county health director, he told the Tampa Bay Times that he had never even seen a copy of the state rules and regulations, and to his knowledge, they didn't exist. It seems as though this was a time where the state was firmly establishing oversight over the county foster care systems, and those changes weren't something the Hines were amenable to in the end. They had worked with the local judge in a much less restrictive fashion up to that point. When Judge Rickey was contacted for this article some two years after the original hubbub, he eventually demurred, saying that foster parents must comply with both county and state regulations. When he was pressed about the Hine Ranch, the judge admitted, quote, I don't believe they have a state license. I would call it state approval. Regulations exist for good reason. John David told me he never remembered anyone coming to the ranch to check on the foster kids. And maybe they did. Maybe they came while he was at school. But certainly, no one ever came to check on him. No one ever asked him how he was doing. Well, I hope this dis discussing all this isn't, you know, dredge up a whole bunch of emotional crap for you. It's, you know, I, I sometimes forget... You know, I've been dealing with it forever, so, yes, you know... I know, if but somebody that... could, somebody could, uh, if you could get to the bottom of the whole thing, it would, it would be, you know, a relief actually, because you know, not knowing all the time is, you know, it's like a missing person versus, mm -hmm. you know, you find the person. There's two different things, you know. Missing, you know, it goes on forever, but but once you find them, then you can actually get relief. In tracking the trajectory of their foster home and when they stopped fostering what was now being called the Hine Ranch for Children, appeared in the Bradenton Herald in 1967, five years before Kay would go missing. Now the home was being touted in the press as Manatee County's largest and oldest foster home. And one has to wonder who came up with that moniker. The article reported that, 
quote, it will become Manatee County's first non-segregated foster home to be known as Heinz Ranch for Children. Now, here's where things started to feel weird, almost like a sales pitch or a PR campaign to the public. I asked John about the whole segregated thing, and he said they never had any black children. They did have Hispanic children, so perhaps they were using that fact to call it a non-segregated home, but I think using it in that way is a bit disingenuous. In the end, the Hines never adopted John David, and since they had adopted the first child, the presumption is that this is because his origin story from the point he intersected with the Hines isn't a nice, tidy story. One that ticks all the legal boxes if someone, oh, I don't know, let's say the state welfare department, came a-knocking. Now here's the story Kay Hine would tell again in the newspaper about the baby that they brought home after their adopted first son when she was asked two years after that first article. One afternoon, she and her husband were reading the paper and noticed a short article in the personal column. A St. Petersburg mother was in a tight spot and needed someone to take her six-year-old son for a short time and give him a home. They contacted her and brought the little boy into their home to play with their own only son as they lived on a ranch in the country producing citrus, cattle, swine, poultry, goats. With no neighbors within a mile, it was a splendid thing to do. They charged the mother nothing because they gained as much as it cost. It worked so well they decided to take in two more children who needed shelter. This time, however, they applied for a license to act as foster parents, and the two they accepted were troubled children, expelled from kindergarten and first grade. Mrs. Hine attended night school to study the varied emotional problems the children were having. That was five years and many, many children ago, but she is continuing her night school even today. So now, in this iteration, it's a six-year-old son, not a five-year-old, as the previous story said. And now, in this iteration, they took in two children who needed shelter, not a troubled nine-year-old who Gilbert had called her to ask her to take on the spur of the moment. The Tampa Tribune's piece the next month is titled Foster Mother Wants 20 Needy Children and said that Kay's goal was to provide a home for 20 underprivileged children in Manatee County. Kay told the reporters she was licensed to care for 12 foster children but wanted to expand. Now we have jumped from 8 to 12, but the point of this article was that the Hines would have to raise money to do so because she was not going to get that money from the state. So now that PR campaign makes sense. Her idea is to provide the home on a long-term basis without the benefit of tax funds. Therefore, a fund to provide necessities such as food, clothing, small medical expenses, etc. is being established. Under this setup, she said, she will be able to keep the children without shifting them from place to place for as long as they are termed foster children by the courts at no cost, with the exception of major medical expenses to the taxpayers. While the Hines Foster Home was county-sponsored entirely, county commissioners paid directly to the home for each child placed there by the court. But about two and a half years ago, 1964 or 65, the State Department of Public Welfare began supervising the homes. Now the Hines hoped to set up a new system. Instead of taking a child for short-term care, They hoped to expand care for the 12 children, preferring to take them at an early age and keep them as long as foster care is needed, with plans to expand to 20, if it is ever financially possible. 
When she was asked, Kay said that their record books of the reorganized home would be open for inspection, quote, to those who need to know, and a detailed accounting of funds expended will be maintained. Quote, this way, it will more resemble a children's home, furnishing the same long-term character, educational, and parental supervision one plans for his own children in his own home. But to me, this sounds more like an orphanage than a foster care situation. But when you hear that they wanted to expand to 20 children to stay for a long period of time, it's more troubling when you consider that John David's impression was that what Gilbert Hine wanted was workers, not children. Yeah, it's very rare, especially back then, it would be very rare that, you know, you didn't have uh, black or Hispanic people doing the oranges, taking, you know, in the orange groves. It, it's, yeah, that would have been very, very unusual. Hmm. And, yeah, in fact, I worked in the orange groves when I was a you know, kid, too. It was never. I was the only, <laughs> I was the only white kid there, so. Huh. It really makes me wonder the origin of your family and if it wasn't some local person that they heard about. Um, she said the story she's given for you is, is it was out of St. Petersburg, that she's basically, that's, that Kay's telling the newspaper, you know, she, that you, you, they went to St. Petersburg to pick you up, but, but she's telling it in a way that, that you were a foster kid and they only watched you for a while and you went back to the parents. I think that was the cover story. That story only fits with you based on age because it was only you and Charlie. So it has to be you. So that's the story she's basically telling, I think, for you. But I don't know if it's a true story. But what is she? She said she saw something in the newspaper. Like what? what's coming in the newspaper that a mother would put an ad saying, I need someone to watch my child, to keep my child until I can take better care. It, it's just made up. It just seems like it's made up, which makes me think it was a more local set of parents because they would have mostly been aware of parents in their county. That's the kids that they were handling. The foster system handled kids in your county, in Manatee County. So that would mean your parents were probably from Manatee County. Right. Yeah, they had to be here somewhere. But did they, were they visiting? Or, because he was in the, in the legal system there, you know, did they end up in the... Was I taken away? That's the only thing I could ever think of in my own head is that because he worked in the juvenile court system, mm -hmm. that something had happened there. And, you know, I was put into, they needed to put me into somebody's custody until something was worked out with the parents or something, until they were checked out as being okay to have kids or something. And then, then you give them back. And he decided not to give me back or something. But if That's all I can think <clears throat> of, but I mean, I have no nothing, you know. Just based on the stories that are in the newspaper of kids that were getting taken away where kids where the mother was not able to, you know, neglectful or something, wasn't able to. You also have to consider the possibility that, you know, it was an underage pregnancy, um, things oh, like absolutely. things like that. And so, but what I don't understand is why it had to be this illegal, why couldn't they have, why wasn't it able to be a real adoption if they just found this kid, if the court found this kid and um, they could have done the same thing they did with Charlie. If it was just a ch child that could have been adopted, there was some reason why they could not adopt you. And right. that reason. That's why they had to have stolen me somehow right. because how are you going to, you know, okay, where did he come from? Mm -hmm. Where's his birth certificate? Where, you know, you have nothing. So yeah, they would take me away immediately and say, well, until we find out who he is, you can't have him.
I mean, it, it it's probably more likely that it wasn't even someone that the that was found through the court system, but that Gilbert or Kay found out about the child, whether it was an unwed mother or who knows back then. And she told Gilbert, "That's you know, we should take that child, Gilbert." But it doesn't sound like Gilbert's the type of person that would do something for Kay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't seem like he's the type of person that would take in a child to make her happy, does it? No. So what no, was? He had a, well, yeah, he, had a, he had some kind of uh, long-term plan, I assume, because then the foster kids came and, you know, because I was, you know, pretty much a working slave from as far back as I can remember. But he would have to know that you specifically would always be a problem for him because you were the illegal child. If he had any pull in the, if there was any way he could have gotten you legally adopted through the court system, he would have. He couldn't do that. So the only thing I can think of was that someone, a buddy, a family member, someone needed a favor. And your parents were people known to them. He said, okay, we'll take this kid, but this is what we want from you or something. Could have been anything. Uh-huh. Could, because if he, if he had this judge that was pretty much amenable to lying for him, why couldn't they have gotten you adopted? The judge could have pressed the family. This could have threatened him, whatever. It just seems to me like the fact that they, he didn't do it all legal compromised the whole foster situation in the first place. And so there had to have been a reason why he couldn't sort of get that done legally. So maybe the judge didn't, I don't know, didn't know about that child or there was a reason why they couldn't do the... Le- no, see, that's, that's the million-dollar question because, like you say, I mean, there seems to be since they had this little organization going here that they could have found a workaround to make this work. Right. But whatever it was, they couldn't even do it. Yeah, that's a, that's... That's what makes it so strange. What could it be that they, even the judge, or they they just couldn't do it? They had the paperwork. They had the ability, but they just well, didn't do it. What comes to mind is that in order to adopt someone, you have to go in and sign papers or whatever. If your parents did not want you to be adopted out, they could not go into court and do that. So it's possible that Charlie's family did want to have that child adopted out. You know, they, they wanted to put that child up for adoption. Your parents did not. So they couldn't bring them into court and do that. And Or they didn't want this person out. It could be a known person in the area. It could have been anything. But it was clearly something that couldn't have been brought to the light. You know, um, whether it's yeah. him bullying the family um, who are not interested in, in turning their children over or something. It just seems strange that him being a court officer, he would be dumb enough to do this without documentation. And that goes to your point about what else he's done in the past if he's that bold to do it. Well, he got away with it. Yeah, yeah. He got away with everything. I mean, yep. nobody ever stopped him, you know, and it's pretty much the old story, you know, without a body, you know, there's no crime. I think that the beginning of the end came with the end of Judge Ricky's tenure on the bench. He was ousted in the 1968 election, replaced by Claflin Garst, who became the new county juvenile judge. While Gilbert Hine continued to work under Garst, the system was reorganized by the administration according to state regulations. County Commissioner Dan McClure, who had served the previous year as welfare chairman for the commission, said that he hoped with a new judge would come a new approach to the handling of foster care homes for children. In the summer of 1970, about a year and a half before Kay Hine would go missing, in a huge win for the Florida foster system, the legislature provided $4.5 million for foster home care. 
The slow ebb of the Hine marriage seemed to run parallel to the final days of the foster home at the Hine Ranch. And by the time that Kay went missing in the beginning of 1972, they were no longer fostering. Family members say they believe that she stopped fostering the year before, which would have been sometime in 1971. Judge Rickey would die in 1974 at the age of 51. Gilbert retired as supervisor of the Juvenile Court Department of Manatee County after 17 years in July of 1979. Two years later, Gilbert Hine married Virginia Carol Hawkins Parr in Medina, Texas. This was the woman that he was alleged to have been having an affair with before his wife died. The same woman whose name is on John David's birth certificate as his mother. In a bit of Fancy legal two-stepping, Gilbert had divorced Kay on November 18, 1981, in Cameron County, Texas, and then he married Virginia Carroll five days later in another county, in Medina County. In 1986, court records show that Gilbert is listed on a deed as an unremarried widower of Kathleen Hine, deceased. But there are two glaring problems with that. First, he was already married to Virginia, a.k.a. Carol, and had been for five years. Second, he had no proof that Kay Hine was deceased. That deed is notarized with the following statement. The grantor herein certifies that Gilbert C. Hine and Kathleen E. Hine, with her name spelled wrong, were husband and wife when they acquired the title to the above-described property and remained husband and wife at all times thereafter until the death of Kathleen Hine on January 14, 1972. Notably, that date is the day before Kay went missing, a day that she was known to be alive. So in 1986, Gilbert Hine signed a legal document saying that his wife was dead, despite having always insisted to police that she ran off with another man, and he lied to the court about not being remarried when he signed it. And what did they need to get that for? Usually if they have to do that, there's some reason why they need to get a birth certificate for you. Well, they wanted to use that, I believe, to try to totally eliminate um, Kay Hines' existence. Mm. They did everything they could to take her name off from everything. They they had deeds that were in her name that uh, the new wife forged her name on so that he could get her land, you know, after he had done away with her. Mm-hmm. There were other deeds uncovered with Kathleen Hines' signature after she went missing and subsequent investigations would note that his new wife's adult children were witnesses to some of those. Those deeds were clearly forged with Kay Hines' signature. It is, for lack of a better phrase, a shitstorm of fraud and lies, and it's shocking that none of it was uncovered as it was happening. None of it was discovered until decades later, and it was Kay's daughter, with the help of a few others assisting her, who would put in the work to uncover it. In the next and final episode, we'll talk about those forged deeds, and I will share what the later reinvestigations uncovered. I'd like to thank Lauren Lively for reading Kay's personal story for this episode, and literally giving her a voice. Thank you, Lauren. Stay tuned. Original music this season by Lauren Marie and Tom Lively, of the Houston-based duo Million Stars Missing.